Welcome to the Tell Janice Radio Show, where you will hear inspiring stories about life, love, and labor from amazing women to help lift you up. Now, here's your host, Janice. Thanks very much, and welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're listening, and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from our guest today. But before we get started, I wanted to remind you that if you know of a fabulous female that you would like me to give a shout-out to with a few words of encouragement, acknowledgement, or congratulations, please let me know their names by clicking on the link at telljanice.com. I'm so excited today. My guest today is Othello Bach. She's an accomplished author who turned a horrific childhood into a story of triumph. She didn't read until the age of eight and yet sold her first novel to Avon Books at the age of 27. Wow. The author of 16 adult and children's books, her stories, music, and lyrics have been recorded by such notables as Joel Gray, Tammy Grimes, and Sandy Duncan. She is the pastor of the Christian Church, and she now resides in Kokomo, Indiana. Welcome to the show, Othello. I'm so excited to have you on this morning. Well, thank you, Janice. I'm very happy to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. I like to, I like to start the show with our guests telling a little bit about themselves. Can you start off with that? We have a, a lot to talk about, but I want you to get started with that. Well, yes, certainly I can do that. Um, number one, I need to correct something that you said. Sure. It wasn't that you said I learned to read at eight or didn't learn to read until eight. That was eighth grade. I was in eighth oh, grade wow. before. Wow. Myself. Yeah. Um, so anyway, a lot of my childhood was quite a struggle. Had to be uh, very creative to figure out how to go ahead and pass the grades without knowing how to read. But I was a really creative cheater, so I was able to do it. And I know that sounds horrible, but uh, eventually it occurred to me while taking a test in the eighth grade, the final test of the year for spelling, that letters had sound assignments. And that was the epiphany, the great pivotal day of my life. And I no longer had to be ashamed and hide and be terrified constantly. I think it is amusing, if nothing else, that I should become a writer after that experience. What do you think? I, I think it's amazing. How how do you think that that happened? I mean, what was going on in your mind at the age, you know, what are you, at, like 13 in eighth grade? Um, what yes. What made that your pivotal moment? Well, because it finally occurred to me while I was cheating on a test, the teacher happened to call three words in a row that began with C-H. I'm copying from a sheet beneath the paper I'm writing on. And I I just guessed. I always just guessed. And generally I was wrong. And, of course, all my spelling words were always out of order because I'm just copying. And um, anyway, uh, that day when I guessed, and uh, the second word I heard the ch sound for ch, and happened to I, it didn't hit me then. I had to hear three of them in a row. She happened to call three in a row, and when I saw three spelling words that all began with the same thing, then it occurred to me, oh, that's the mystery. That's the thing they know. That's the the huge big deal that lets me out of prison. It was more in it was more like this learning the key to the universe. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't hear a thing she said after that. I don't even know if I finished the test. All I wanted to do was get to a library and check out a book, which I had never done because I couldn't. I mean, I, I would ch- I, that's not true. I could check them out, but I didn't read them. Uh, they would say check them out, but I would have someone else tell me the story so I could uh, know what it was. And I would have – but I should, probably should say <clears> – <throat> To back up and say, uh, I grew up in an orphanage. Mm-hmm. I went there when I was seven. I did not leave until I was 18. And um, it was because of a house farm. My mother was burned to death. Unfortunately, I saw the whole thing. Uh, then we were put in an orphanage. There were seven of us. Um, we didn't know about the orphanage. My three older brothers did not at that time. One came later, and uh, it was not a pretty or a fun place, and it was, um, we were separated from each other and never got to see each other, and so we're very, very lonely. So I imagine that I miss reading because I was seven years old when she died. I miss, I was just traumatized probably um, and did not get, it, it, I'm sure they taught phonics. People used to teach phonics at that time, and mm-hmm. but it it didn't take. It was like um, I mean, I heard I heard gongs and bells and things, but they made no sense to me. So I just learned to cheat. Now I was always very verbal, as you might guess from listening to me rattle on now. Uh, so and I was always very inquisitive and could ask other kids to do homework for me while I did. We had a barter system that went on. Uh, We all had jobs, and some jobs we hated worse than others, but personal jobs, like uh, needing to set your hair for school tomorrow, that kind of thing. I was good at that. And so I would fix their hair, or I would do anything that was uh, artistic for them, and uh, in return... They would read me an assignment, and I could get the information, raise my hand in class, that sort of thing. So it's just it's survival mode. I was horribly embarrassed, never told anyone, not that I don't think maybe some of them knew it anyway. But um, anyway, so that's how it started. In fact, I'm speaking to a literacy co- coalition tomorrow, um, not tomorrow, uh, next week, and mm-hmm. The idea is to speak to people who are just now getting it, you know, just now in some kind of reading class. It's mainly adults. It's quite a huge program here in Indiana and being run by some very, very fervent and wonderful people. And um, so I'm glad I can contribute and help them. So I have 30 books on Amazon.com. Wow. And they range in scope from um, thrillers to children's books to uh, how-to books spiritual books and my memoir about growing up in the orphanage and um so i've said enough for now what do you want me to talk about oh i think that's a great start i'm i'm very i'm fascinated about the illiteracy and how you're helping other people now um in indiana with their illiteracy. I mean, how does one go from, I can see back in Oklahoma, back in those times, you, you got through the, through um, not being able to read 
until the eighth grade um, through the so barter system. That's a great story. Um, do you find a lot of that still going on, though, Othello? A lot of what? Illiteracy? Like, or yes. yes. Well, no, illiteracy. Absolutely. Uh, apparently, there's a lot more than uh, I was aware of when I got involved in this, and more than most people are aware of. There are a lot of adults that can't read. It doesn't, and of course, they think they're stupid <clears throat> because mm-hmm. that's what I always thought. And it's so hard to get past that idea that you don't want to admit it. But I recall a story uh, or an interview one time I heard from, uh, I was an adult in my 30s, this interview on the radio, and it was about uh, learning to read. And the whoever was the host of the show was talking about how you couldn't get anywhere if you couldn't read. You just couldn't make it. You were just, like, doomed, and so you had to learn to read. And so she had callers, and as the callers called in, one man said, uh, yes, uh, he had been stuck with the same problem. And she said, and I bet you never made any, were never able to make anything of your life, were you? And he said, well, my ex is rather... And he met the letter X is rather well known, and it turned out he was a bank president. And uh, wow! So I I was so thrilled he did that, so that people would know who can't read that it's not a matter of intelligence. There's something else going on, you know. And a lot of it um, is dyslexia, and I think I have that for sure, uh, also because. Um, I have trouble transposing numbers. I have a lot of trouble with that. And so I'm surprised you got me on the right day and I dialed the telephone correctly, okay? (laughs) I'm I'm glad that we got you on the right day. (laughs) I want want to read a quote that I I read about you. Um, This is a quote from you. It's, um, I began, well, first of all, let's back up. What was the first book that you wrote in 1963? It was called uh, House of Secrets. Okay. Was was that about your, oh, it was a novel, a thriller. So when I began writing Janice, that was uh, four years after I got out of the orphanage, and I decided people should know what goes on in orphanages. And by the way, I'm going to interrupt myself to say, There are 600,000 kids in this country in orphanages right now. The reason they don't know it is because they're called group homes. But those group Mm -hmm. homes can be anywhere from eight kids to 2,500 kids. And I've done the research, and I know it's true. And so while I'm on the subject, because it's very dear to my heart, and I really hope one day I can get before Congress and really ask them to change some things, because... Of those 600,000 kids, which an equal number is in foster care, so look how many kids we have that are just without parents, and the care can be really questionable at times, can be uh, just like non-existent. And our government, federal government, does not keep tabs on the one-thing group homes. I know you won't believe me. I know your listeners won't believe me, but I call to find out. And that's what I was told more than once. And so they're like unimportant people. In the 50s when I was in the orphanage, 
those kids were allowed to be taken out by various doctors for experimentation. I don't know if you know that, fertility oh. experiments and things like that. And it was a hideous situation. They came and got three kids from our orphanage every year to go to a mental hospital for experiments. So they finally outlawed that. Uh, and also, I think it was the late 50s that that was outlawed. So anyway, yeah, that's there and dear to my heart. Another subject that I like to talk about is um, incest and rape. In other words, sexual uh, abuse, because that was a big part of my life, a traumatic part of my life. And I do have things I want to say about that to your listeners, which is Mm -hmm. you don't have to be scarred for life. You really don't. Uh, And the ones who do the most scarring are the ones who think about it most. Because every time we have a, a memory that hurts us, that makes us sad and makes us feel like we're no good, that memory is actually reinforcing that idea. It's traumatizing us again and again and again until eventually we're so certain we can't get where we want to go that we don't try. We just give up. So um, as far as me and how I look at it, you just got to do what it is you want to do. Just do it. Just do it. Prove that you can do it. Prove it to yourself. Now, I think that was what I was trying to do when I said I'm going to show what's in the orphanages. By the way, when I wrote my very first book was actually, yes, Crying to the Wind is the title. It's my memoir. And I wrote that at 22. And then sent it out. And the first letter I got back, first rejection letter I got back, said, who are you trying to kid? Nothing like this has happened since Dickens wrote about it. So I knew they did not believe what I had said. Plus the guy said, you have, you need to pick a less pretentious pseudonym. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I didn't know what So I had to look up pretentious, and I had to look up pseudonym in the dictionary. Yeah to find out that he didn't believe my name and he didn't believe my story. So I thought, then I'll write something, they'll believe, I'll write fiction. And so I started, I wrote my first thriller novel at that point. Thrillers were easy to write because I was still so scared, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it sold to Avon Books, became a bestseller. And my next two novels were also, and my very first children's book was, so I've had some some good uh, results from writing. Absolutely. Like, yeah, so now that your listeners know everything about me, what do we talk about? <laughs> well, I like that um, I've read that your Cry into the Wind is a modern-day version of The Grapes of Wrath, which I just love that story, and all of us do. Um, I like that they um, likened and compared the two. Uh, I have not read it in its entirety, but I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, and it offers a revealing glimpse of your dysfunctional existence at that time. So you went from writing The House of Secrets, uh, which was a thriller, and, and they didn't believe you, and then you went to writing children's oh, no, books. No. Oh, no, you've got the title wrong. How, 
Okay. How to speak it the thriller. Okay. Cry into the wind is my memoir, and that's what exactly. I wrote first. And okay. Cry into the wind. Cry into the wind. I couldn't do anything with, then nobody believed it. So I sent it, uh, or I set it aside for 1985. I got it out again and looked at it and cleaned it up a little. I was a better writer by then. And uh, it was published in uh, 95, okay? No, 2005. It was published in 2005. And uh, so, and then I, I read it, reread it this week because we were going to be on this interview, which I had not mm-hmm. read it, really read it to see what the story was. Uh, I had proofread it to make sure it was... Uh, you know, the spelling and punctuation was correct before I sent it to the printer in, or to the publisher in 2005. But I wasn't reading to read the sentiment of it. Mm-hmm. This time when I read it, and then, of course, uh, I was much more emotional because I'm reading it for the story. Right. And I was uh, really, really so thankful that I had the sense to write it all down early because there was so much I would have forgotten had I not written it down immediately. Mm -hmm. Just knowing it's it's, uh, something people should know about. They should know about the abuses. They should know how uh, they came into our dorms and raped the little girls. They should know the punishments that were just hideous and cruel. They should know children were kept apart. Now, yes, I know in these group homes it's a little different if it's a small one. They might let the family stay together in that. I mean, if it's eight or ten, they might let the family stay together. But I also know they still separate them. So, mm-hmm. And a lot of it is worse today because of drugs. <clears throat> and I don't right. mean drugs the kids are taking. I'm talking about drugs that keep the kids quiet, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was told by... One of the managers of um, some of those homes here in Indiana, he said, well, I want you to know the situation's worse today. And it's worse today because uh, he told me the drug thing. He said that they will frequently say, okay, every morning it's time for your meds, and everybody lines up, okay? That's not a Mm -hmm. good deal. (laughs) No. So. Anyway, so that's my crusade. I have two crusades to help people get uh, past problems that were created when through abuse and also to try to stop some of the current abuse that's being ignored. Right. Well, I'm, I'm just I'm amazed that you could go through what you did and are still helping people. Um and and your motto, just do it, I understand that now. You had given me that, too, and I didn't know what you meant by that, and I understand it at this at this point. Um, do you do you think just in your your research recently about group homes and orphanages that things have improved a little bit? Do, like, for example, when you were in an orphanage, they didn't have the same types of behavioral type um, drugs, but did they give you all drugs? to to um sort of we control all of you at that no we did not have drugs um, okay well let me tell you what the number one hiring uh requisite is for group homes mhm 
driver's license and GED. If you have those two things, you can hire in as a house parent in 90% of them. That's true. Wow. And I can send you what you want to verify. Um, so do I think it's changed for the better? I don't think it's changed much. Plus, there's, they're nearly all run by churches. And they're in every state. They're just not known to the public. So I, even when I got out of the orphanage, people were surprised to learn there were still orphanages. You know, and that was 1960. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I hope to get something before I die to, to help those kids. Well, it sounds like you're doing a remarkable job. On a different note, um, and on a happier note, I want to have you tell our guests about um, your your book, Whoever Heard of a Furred. And talk about the fur folds. Can you can you tell our guests about that and how you came up with that title and the characters? Okay, that's easy to remember. That was my first children's book. It was actually how I came up with the idea. It came out of boredom. I was sitting in a writers group in Los Angeles, a big writers group, like a hundred people, and they broke up into little groups, and then they read their work. One at a time. Well, I'm. It was late. It was like eight o'clock in the evening. I had to drive back to Orange County after that, so I was kind of antsy. But they started um, somebody's novel, a chapter, and it was about wagon trains and things I'm not interested in. And I just was so bored that I decided <clears throat> that I, so I'm a doodler. I'm a dar- uh, an artist of sorts. And I drew a picture of a fish, and I thought, well, that's boring, too. So I put legs on it, and I put a beak on it and gave it some wings. And then I asked myself, is it a fish or a bird? And I said, well, it's either a fish or a bird. And I liked bird better. Fish sounded dumb. So anyway, uh, immediately the title came, well, whoever heard of a bird, right? And right. So on the way home, that drive, I just left. I just left the boring writers group. I was so excited over the idea, and told myself the story on the way home. Once it was a little bird, just an ordinary bird, part fish, part bird, and he was hunting. He wanted to find a herd of bird um, to find out if he's birding right. He was raised by Nesta Dickens, part dog, part chickens, and they had never heard of a bird. So anyway, it all came to me just immediately. And I went home, and it was like 10 o'clock when I got home, and I sat down at the typewriter and wrote the whole thing and went to bed about 2 o'clock. So I was wow. very – and then I sent it out <clears throat> over and over and over, and nobody wanted it. And so I thought, well, I might as well turn this into what I really like. So because I love to compose new songs, I wrote uh, 13 songs for all the 13 two-feature creatures in that book. And uh, everybody wow. got a song. And then when nobody still wanted, I got it rejected faster than once I wrote music. And so I had, I just had to find out if it was any good. I thought it was good, but I knew I was considerably biased. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to Hanna-Barbera. And uh, I had been studying hypnosis at this point because I 
wanted to use it as a profession, but I wanted to use it on myself, too. So anyway, I went to Hanna-Barbera with no appointment and told the, and I got stopped, of course, at the parking lot that I couldn't go in, but I lied. And I said, I have an appointment. And he looked at his sheet, and he said, well, I don't see that you have. And I said, well, I do. And I, I was just really insulted that uh, they didn't have my name down, blah, blah. So while he went to check to see in his little booth there in the parking lot, if I had an appointment, I just drove on in, parked, grabbed my third stuff, my, and ran, ran. He's chasing me saying, lady, lady, you can't go in there. And I went in there anyway. And he had other people trying to get in, so he had to go take care of his job. I went in, and I was nervous as could be. And I told the girl, the receptionist, I had an appointment with Mr. So-and-so, and he said, and she said, I don't have you down. And I said, well, I called this morning. I'm supposed to be here at 1 o'clock. So she said, well, he hasn't come back from lunch. I'll let you know as soon as he does. And I sat down, nervous, of course, panicky, but determined to go through with it. And finally she said, okay, he's back in his office, his lights on, so you can go on up. I don't even know where the elevators are, so I just start walking. And I find uh, the elevators, and a young man got on who was pushing a bunch of flyers for children actresses and actors, and um, that we were the only two in the elevator. So he asked me when he started to punch the floor, what floor did I want? And I said, I don't know. I want Mr. So-and-so. And he said, oh, that's where I'm going. And so we got off the same floor. He pointed me to the office. I walk in. And uh, fortuitously, uh, the receptionist or secretary was not in her office. So I just stepped over to the boss's office. He's in there with a headset on, listening to music, and there's two walls of moving tapes and things on the wall and all this electronic stuff. And when he finally turned around and saw me, he says, he took off the headphones. He says, oh, yes, who are you? I said, I'm Othello Box. Well, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to tell you a story. And he said, no, 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 lady. Things like this don't happen here. He said, you've got to go to the right channel. And I said, I want you to listen to the music. If you tell me the music is good, then I'm happy. That's all, okay? Anyway, he was very furious. He said he was going to call the guards and have me thrown out, and I told him that would be a really good move because then I would call the papers and I would tell them this poor writer was tossed out on her ear, et cetera. (laughs) So he he made me an appointment. I couldn't believe it when he kept the appointment, which was two days later. Wow. He was so angry, his jowls were shaking, you know. And so, anyway, but he did. Now, I knew I had one chance. He had a piano in there, and I saw that. I knew I had one chance. And so I sat down. I told the story, because at that time I had the whole thing memorized. I played the songs and sang the songs. Now, I'm not a great singer, but I can get the idea across. And right. Anyway, I'm a Halfway through it, and he said, uh, uh, Orbello, <laughs> and I always hate it when they add an R to my name, but Orbello, he said, can I uh, can I ask you to stop for a minute? He said, 
He really said, this is the greatest thing that's come across my desk ever since I've been here. And oh, he said, wow. Sit, sit still. I'm going to call Bill Hanna and Jane Barbera, and we're going to do something with this. Well, they weren't there. He had me wait in the cafeteria for a couple hours and told me they weren't coming back for the day, but he wanted to show it. As it turned out, several months later, I got a call. And they wanted to buy it outright. And, Amazing. And I asked how much they want to. They were offering, and he wouldn't tell me. He said, "How much do you want?" Well, I knew I didn't know enough to know what I should say. So mm-hmm. I said, "Will you tell me what you're offering?" And that went on and on until he finally said that he was only authorized to give me like a hundred thousand dollars. Well, I knew even way back then. That that wasn't going to make me very happy. I could get more if I had a royalty, you know. Mm-hmm. So and um, so anyway, I took it and I tramped around and I finally got through the back door of a company called Cadman, which I love their music. They're recording at Peter the Wolf, and they did the finest, you know, orchestra recordings that you could get your hands on. And I wanted them to do it if they could. So I sent it to them and said, I'm having trouble selling this book. Will you listen to the music and see if it's worth recording? And give me a letter saying you like the music. That's what I want. And it took them a year to actually make the decision. But they came back and said, um, on the strength of this book, we're going to start a publishing company. We love your music. So that's how it got started. Oh, wow. That's oh, a wow. wonderful story. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. You did all of that yourself. How did you how did you have the courage to do all that? You Where'd just you find that? Do it. That's it. It, it, it. Forget courage. How bad do you want it? You know, that's the thing. Right. I can remember when when before my mother died was burned, uh I was begging for shoes because I was I wanted some pretty patent leather shoes, and I was barefoot, and I kept begging for that. And I kept begging for a rubber doll, begging, begging, but it was the shoes one day. I took the cat, Sears catalog and threw it up on the table and said, Mama, I want them shoes. And she said, look me straight in the eye and said, oh, fellow, if you want them bad enough, you can have them. So I thought that meant she was going to give them to me, right? So I said, well, I want them really, really bad. <laughs> so anyway, but the shoes didn't come. And then one day I'm sitting out writing my name in the dirt because we were we were so poor we didn't have shoes. And mm-hmm. as I'm sitting there, it occurred to me that she didn't say she was getting me those shoes, and that really made me angry. So I grabbed the catalog again and went in and put it down in front of her, and she's boiling something on the stove and she's got the baby in her arm and she's all sweaty. I remember how she looked so clearly. And she's, I said, Mama, I won't see him shoes. And she said, and old fellow, I told you if you want them bad enough, you can have them. And I knew she was saying you got to get those things for yourself. And at first I was very angry. Mm-hmm. But as, as I and I went back out to try to write my name again. And as I did, it, I thought, well, if I had to do it, how would I do it? I thought, well, I can cut out paper dolls. 
I can tell those beside the road to the people that drive by. And that feeling, that thought gave me a feeling of such great power that, you know, I, I could probably do this by myself. So that's you did. what I mean. When it's just do it, you know, that's what I mean. And, and if way. you want it bad enough, right. So it's speaking of your mother... And speaking of your mother, Othello, um, and I know that you lost her at an early age, uh, if if you were to think of one virtue or rule about life that she instilled in you, what's the first thing that would come to mind? Do it. Just do it. I love it. Do it. And if you, and okay. if you want it bad enough, she, she taught you that, didn't she? Yeah. You want it bad enough, do it. You know, just get it done. So it took me 10 years, by the way, from the time I wrote the FERD until I sold the FERD. That was a 10-year journey. So Wow. And now, now I was reading. Go ahead. I was going to say, it doesn't matter if something is easy or hard. Once you, even after you've sold the books or you've uh, made your million dollars, whatever it was, once you have it, that is not the thrill. The thrill was doing it. It was figuring out how to do it. That's when you feel accomplished. That's mm-hmm. when your confidence like, oh, okay, I can handle this life, you know. And you did. So this, this um, whoever heard of a FERD, you've now re-released it, well, did in 2012 as an audio book, I believe, and this was a 35-year journey for that. Oh, yeah. Well, 20 years of that journey, by the way, after that book was published, and I don't know how much time we have left, but after that book was published, uh, it was out one year. There were over 100 licensed products in the stores. Hannibal Burns had planned to do a film, uh, no, a cartoon, uh, Saturday morning cartoon. And a year later, when everything was booming, one day I'd go into Toys R Us where I had had a whole aisle of toys, and uh, there was nothing. I went into the bookstore, and I had no books there. Wow. What it was was um, HarperCollins bought the little publisher who did Whoever Heard of a Third, and uh, so they acquired Cadman Books, and in the process um, got involved with Disney, and Disney ripped off the concept. And they my my toys were called for full sets where all the uh, all the clothes and everything they produced based on this book and and suddenly disappeared. Um anyway, Disney. Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. Um they just took it. People say to me, Didn't you have copyrights? Well of course I did. So I called Hannah Barbera and said, what are we going to do about this? Hannah Barbera said, we don't know what you're going to do, but we can't sue God. So that's how powerful Disney was at the time. It probably still is. But I know they, Michael Eisner is not there anymore. So anyway, it took me 20 years, 20 years to get the rights back. And it wasn't just that book. They also acquired eight others at the same time, uh, seven others. There were eight altogether. Mm-hmm. So all of my work, 
all my children's work was taken off the market for 20 years because I could not go to another publisher with it because actually Hannah Barrera, no, not Hannah Barrera, uh, HarperCollins owned it. So it took, and I had to wait for the head attorney at HarperCollins to either retire or die. I don't know what she did. But I called them every year, and I wrote them every year, where's my work, where's my baby, and I they ever had my work. I said, I have papers here, letters here from you. I, I sent them the first three years. I have contracts with you. And they would say, well, I don't know. One lady said, honey, I think you just slipped through the cracks. Oh, my. It wasn't until 2000, I think, four, that I was able to... Uh, that I sent an email, and the person who answered was the new head of the legal department. She's the lead attorney, and she said, what? And I told her, and she said, that's 20 years ago. I said, I know, and I had not been able to market any of that work. And she said, well, I'll see what I'll do. I can do for you. Three months later, I had all the rights back. Oh, wow. So, but no agent would touch during all those years, but I kept writing, and this summer, whenever I, last summer, was counting up the number of books I've written, I have 85 finished Wow, wow. Um, on probably 12 different, um, in 12 different genres. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, well, that's, Othello, that's, so, that's terrific. Absolutely true. So uh, anyway, now that we could publish our own books on Amazon, and I couldn't get anybody interested because it looked like I hadn't published anything for so long, that I just decided I'm a publisher too now. So I started putting my stuff on Amazon. Crying to the Wind was a bestseller for mm-hmm. the first three years, I think. It's hard. I don't like the publishing end of anything. I like the creative end. Mm-hmm. So I would love to not be a publisher, but I am. And any publisher listening, if you want my work, you got it, okay? So <laughs> we'll start over. Well, definitely Amazon has brought a whole new opportunity for a lot of people. It sounds like, sounds like um, it has for you, too. Um, what would, because, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. You have a question. What would, yeah, I do. Um, what would, advice would you give to our, our younger audience? Because we're here trying to help, you know, all of our, I have a daughter and all of our daughters out there. So what advice would you give about putting their ideas, products, or books out there? I know you, you said you just, I have a feeling what you're going to say, just do it. But I, you persevered through through unimaginable obstacles. Um, what well, advice, in a nutshell, would you give our listeners, especially women? Well, especially women. Um, mm-hmm. The number one thing, I think, in any goal that you have, and there are probably very few of them that want to be writers, um, any goal that you have uh, is to recognize that I'm going to, I don't know how to say it, and I've got four points I want to make. Okay. One is 
every thought creates a corresponding emotion. If they don't know that, they don't know they're making themselves miserable, okay? Mm-hmm. They don't know that they're thinking about how they won't succeed instead of how they might. Number two, and so what I said is every thought creates a corresponding emotion. Number two is emotion creates belief. When we feel something, we believe it's true. Number three is belief prompts action. It will mm-hmm. make you act. If you believe you left your door open when you left at night, you'll go back and close it, even if you actually close it, right? Mm-hmm. You might believe, and belief prompts action, and action produces effects. So you I love you that. I so love that. Anyway, it doesn't matter what you apply it to. If you're just talking about I want to be happy today, then guess who has to think happy thoughts, right? Right. If you think, right. I mean, it's as simple as that. And if you're unhappy to recognize you just did it. And that's what I meant when I said the people who've been abused continue to abuse themselves by thinking of what happened. Forget what happened. Think about what you want to happen. Mm-hmm. It's just a simple, but it's not easy to do. Because we develop habits in our thinking, you know. Uh, we, bec- we think the same thoughts over and over. And so the idea is to break, break that chain or that right. chain of thought. Have, using those four thoughts that you just gave our listeners, have you written a book about, you know, using thoughts, creating happiness? I have a book, um, yes. I have, in fact, the end of Crying to the Wind, the whole last chapter of that is called The Happiness Program. I have a book called The Happiness Option, which is based on the same principles, but it's just a little thin book by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I taught this for years. I saw it work miracles in a lot of lives. But until we know we're the ones creating our own emotions, there's not much we can do about it. Right. And I do when I first started this, that program, which I started working on myself, oh, the 1980s, somewhere in there. And when I started working on myself, my first thought was, I'm justified in hanging on to my anger, right? Mm-hmm. I have good reason to feel sorry for myself. But then it boils down to, well, is that how I want to spend my life? Is that what I want to do, you know? So even even when you're going for it and knowing that, you know, your mama said, get it done sort of thing, uh, you still have to recognize the hours of the day that you make yourself miserable because you're thinking things that make you feel bummed. Right. Exactly. And that is you. In fact, I will say to I ran a weight loss program. I was a hypnotherapist as well as a, a teacher, creative writing, and then went into seminary and became a minister. So I've worn a lot of hats, so you know I'm not 25 years old. <laughs> and so anyway, I can speak with a little bit of authority that I know that when you become aware of your thoughts, you can do something about your life. Until you become aware of your thoughts, which is your kingdom, okay? Mm-hmm. You are the king or queen of your kingdom. And if you're not paying attention 
to your subjects, which are the subjects you think about, then you're not really a very good king or queen. And you are right. also, unfortunately, the subject, you know. <laughs> so, you're the queen and you're the subject. So, anyway, it boils well. down to, you know, uh, personal responsibility. Definitely personal responsibility. Wow, I've I've learned so much. You're such an inspiration, Othello. Well, uh, thank you. I don't know. And, that, I mean, I don't understand that, but okay. To me, it's just kind of <laughs> logical. We teach each other what we figure out. Okay. Absolutely. I remember when Absolutely. I was twenty. I used to think when I'd read the newspaper because I never was exposed to a newspaper in the orphanage. So I didn't know what went on in the world, but when I started reading what went on in the world, and I thought, you know, if we could siphon off the information from a person's brain before they died or even after they died, if we had a way to suck that information out, put it in a bottle, and then uh, give it to other people who needed it, right, who wanted that information. And by the way, I just read an article within the last six weeks where they're starting to be able to do that. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? So that we can have this bank of knowledge that says, okay, baby, you're doing this to yourself. Quit hitting yourself in the head with a hammer, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I've learned a lot from this interview, and that time sure goes Time goes fast, time goes slow at the same time. I know. Othello, I could could continue to talk and talk. Maybe we'll get to talk in the future um, some more. How can our listeners um, find your website and learn more about you and and your books? Go to OthelloBox.com or go to Amazon.com. And okay. have you ever heard of a third dot com? If you go to Amazon, just type in my name, and that's O T H E L L O B A C H. And by the way, it's really easy having a hard name. Like some guy <laughs> called me this morning, this is Othello Back. And I said, I don't need what you're selling, you know. So when they mispronounce it that bad, I know it's a solicitor. Well, I anyway. I love your love your name, and I won't put an R in it like other people have. Thank you, thank you. After you read my book, let's talk again. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to thank you once again, Othello, for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Okay, we'll talk in the future. I'm hoping too. And ladies, I am so happy that you turned in today and learned from our amazing, fantastic female guest, and I hope you recognize this as an opportunity to pass their knowledge on to your daughters and friends and share the wisdom of the ages. I'll talk to you again soon, and in the meantime, let's lift each other up, spread the love, and share an attitude of gratitude. Thank you so much.
Olive Crest is a local nonprofit organization dedicated to preventing child abuse, treating and educating at-risk children, and preserving the family one life at a time. For 40 years, Olive Crest has provided safe, loving homes to at-risk youth throughout Southern California, Nevada, and the Pacific Northwest. There are many ways you can help, including volunteering or becoming a foster parent. Go to www.olivecrest.org or call 1-800-550-CHILD to learn more. That's 1-800-550-CHILD. Call today. You've been listening to the Tal Janice Radio Show. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest a guest for the show, or if you would like to nominate a fabulous female for a shout-out by Janice on the live show, please visit www.talljanice.com. Please share this episode with your social network and help us lift women up. Join us next week for another episode of Tell Janice.